created. Well, we come to a great reversal now. Jesus on trial. The judge of all the earth brought before the bar of justice. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to the end of John chapter 18 and um, pick up with the Roman trial of Jesus. We'll be starting in verse 28. And um, the uh, question for today is I'll be handling a number of Pilate's questions over the next several weeks, but the question for today is what accusation do you bring against this man? I'd like to read into chapter 19 a little further because today is going to be an overview of the Roman trial and then over the next several weeks we'll pick up various parts of this very interesting dialogue here between them. But let's have an overview today starting in John 18. Let me read to you starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, 
you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought out Jesus and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover at about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to, the, to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, great was the outburst of evil when you were doing the greatest good for the world. When your mercy had reached its pitch, so had the rebellion of man. We pray that from such uh, terrible words we might learn good lessons and that we might see our Lord Jesus again holy and high and lifted up. That we who indeed in so many ways have joined our voice with the crowd might find in him that source and the everlasting source of joy and life and peace. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Probably the most famous sermon that was ever delivered on American soil was preached by the eminent Congregationalist Jonathan Edwards in a sermon called, well, you guessed it, I hope, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. When he preached that sermon on July 8th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, he was not able to finish that relatively brief sermon because the congregation had been so powerfully affected, weeping and even crying out that we read that the minister was forced to desist. That sermon was remarkably blessed to the salvation of many people as it was then printed and reproduced and Edwards became the most notable American preacher of that great revival known as the Great Awakening. But uh, most high school anthologies of American literature, like the one that I had to suffer with, uh, only gave us a, a paragraph from that sermon. And uh, in that paragraph, which is, of course, taken all out of context, it's, uh, it's rather gloomy, uh, the part they select is where Edwards compares the sinner to a loathsome spider a spider which is dangling over the flames of hell by its own frail thread and all supported only by the hand of God. Making it sound as though God is taking some perverse delight in dangling sinners over the flames of hell. 
missing the point of the sermon completely. The, the point of the illustration is that the only thing that is keeping sinners out of hell at this moment is the mercy of God that upholds them, the God whom they are nevertheless continually provoking to anger. Uh, not a picture of God's uh, torturing, but of his mercy upholding the ones that are continually provoking him. Nevertheless, modern people reading only that illustration read it and they say, what a terrible thing that God would treat people in that way. Well, in the passage before us, the shoe is on the other foot, isn't it? That is to say, if they're offended at Edward's sermon, there's another sermon that they have to read that's even worse. The sermon that John is preaching to us here when God is in the hands of angry sinners. And this is an oratory. This is history. It's the true story of what happened when roles are reversed and how men treated God incarnate when he was in their hands. Now, perhaps readers might tend to be more sympathetic with this than they were toward Jonathan and Edwards. Perhaps we might find some excuse for people for how they were treating God incarnate both then as well as now. Jesus, as uh, Steve told us, and as we've been reading so far, is the judge of all the earth. But what happens when roles are reversed and people get to judge Jesus? I'd like to have one general sermon today, as I mentioned, about Jesus on trial. And then in the next several weeks, we'll consider this interesting dialogue, and it raises important questions. How exactly is Christ's kingdom not of this world? And what is truth? And so forth. Uh, today, this overview of the trial before Pilate, and I'll be bringing in the testimony of a few other gospel writers as well as needed. So this passage before us begins with a kind of tense exchange between Pilate and the Jewish rulers. And you're right to assume they must have some history behind them. Absolutely, there is some famous history leading up to this. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea from 26 to 37 AD. And he'd made some early mistakes in his reign that started him off on the wrong foot with the people he was set over. For example, he had some soldiers uh, uh, at the beginning march into uh, Jerusalem uh, with standards that bore the image of Caesar, which the Jews considered to be an idolatrous desecration of holy places. Uh, Caiaphas led 2,000 Jews in protest, and Pilate first threatened to slaughter them all, which would have been a disaster politically, but then he had to back off, and he lost face, and he undermined his leadership. Um, a little later, Pilate built an aqueduct to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. But he used the temple tax money to do that. And when the people found out, they rioted. And this time, Pilate did slaughter many of them. And it was so bad, the Jewish rulers then came and protested before the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar, that, that this, this man is terrible. And, and Tiberius did issue a scathing rebuke to Pilate for his poor leadership. Since uh, Tiberius was notoriously paranoid and had had people executed for trivial reasons, uh, Pilate, whose job was also on the line, couldn't risk another complaint to Rome. And so he was trying to rule them without overly upsetting them. 
And that tense power dynamic is what's behind this awkward conversation before us. The Jewish rulers bring Jesus to Pilate. He asks them in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? Roman law wasn't, uh, uh, didn't uh, condemn anyone without charges. But the Jewish rulers don't want a trial. The Jewish rulers simply want an execution. They have already tried Jesus and condemned him to death. And now they want Pilate to carry out their sentence. Verse 30, hey, if he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. Now, Pilate is in something of a dilemma. As the Roman governor, he can't ignore the well-known Roman Valerian law, which would might condemn Jesus to death without even so much as an accusation. But Pilate does not like being ordered around by his own subjects either. So he replies, hey, you take him and judge him by your own law. And that forces them to admit who's actually in charge here, right? It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So this is the back and forth, and uh, this will be important later also. But this much settled, Pilate takes in the prisoner to interrogate him and to render his own judgment. Well, rather quickly, he recognizes that Jesus is innocent and begins looking for some way to let him go. He looks, and he looks, and he looks, but he fails in that search. That Pilate finds that he has to at last render a decision about Jesus to condemn him and have him crucified. And the story of how that happened and how the innocent Jesus was condemned is an interesting one that teaches us something important about the world today and about what happens when Jesus still today falls into the hands of angry men. How the world today still judges Jesus. To uh, give you the overview, I'm going to consider with you four voices that all called for Jesus to be acquitted, to be let go. Four voices that joined together to say, don't condemn Jesus. The first was the voice of reason. The voice of reason. Uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me, uh, Pilate, he may have been a, a vacillating and sometimes brutal man, but you don't get to become the Roman governor of a province by being a fool. Uh, and Pilate could see right through the Jewish rulers, and he had no trouble reading their motivations. But Matthew even comments that Pilate knew they had handed Jesus over because of envy. I mean, even in the dialogue, almost right away, Pilate knows that Jesus has done nothing deserving of death, and he didn't mind saying so three times. The, the voice of reason was crying out, don't condemn Jesus. And let me point out that the voice of reason still cries out today. And if you are going to crucify Jesus, you're going to have to crucify the voice of reason first. Of course, plenty of accusations then and now have been stacked up against Jesus. People have said many things against him. Though Pilate illustrates here how just a little inquiry will reveal that all the accusations are false. That is, lies by people who clearly have some other motivation. And it's the same today. One of the, one of the more honest atheists uh, in the world today is Thomas Nagel, now emeritus professor of philosophy at NYU. 
He, he admits in his writings the profound problems of atheism, such as how to explain the existence of a universe like ours that is so evidently tuned for human life in particular, and why evolution cannot explain human consciousness and so forth. He's, again, as an atheist, just remarkably honest and self-aware. Well, why then is he an, an atheist? Well, in his book, The Last Word, Nagel writes with refreshing honesty about why after all that, after all these admissions, he is still finding, seeking a way rather to, to hold on to his atheism. He writes, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And then a footnote, he even wonders aloud how anyone could even come to the question of God's existence in an unbiased way. Here is the modern picture of God in the hands of angry sinners. People who are obviously brilliant and d demonstrate by their reason that they understand the tension. People who look into things even a little find that they are doing violence to their own souls to silence the voice of reason. Jesus tells Pilate in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. A bold declaration that, dis that distinguishes whose side you're on. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. Rejecting Jesus is fundamentally a heart issue, not a head issue. And we need to remember this when we're speaking to people. Rejecting Jesus is fundamentally a heart issue, not a head issue. In other words, it's fundamentally a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. It's an issue of desire, not of truth. Oh, there are lies told about Jesus that need to be swept away, and it's important to do that. But that's not what's at the root. Reason spoke to Pilate. And reason is still speaking today. And if you're not a Christian, don't just take someone else's word about Jesus. You look into it yourself, because the truth is not hard to find. And everyone who is on the side of truth will hear. You do that, and you will find yourself judging Jesus very differently than what you've heard. You will judge him to be the Son of God, worthy of all glory, honor, majesty, and praise. But you too must listen Point one, to the voice of reason. But that wasn't the only voice that spoke to Pilate that day. He heard, secondly, the voice of a loved one. The voice of a loved one. John doesn't actually mention it, but Matthew does, and I'll just mention it briefly. Pilate's wife had a disturbing dream about Jesus that she knew was of the Lord. And so, while Pilate was still in, on his judgment seat, she sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have just suffered many things today in a dream because of him. And writers have speculated what might ha have been the effect on Pilate of those words, if any, based on what happens. But in any case, 
disregarding the voice of a loved one, he also condemned Jesus and handed him over to be crucified. Well, I also will mention to you briefly that voice is still heard today, that God has appointed that we should be saved through a word, the good news or the gospel, through a word that we can speak to one another while even bearing witness of what the Lord has done in our life, why it's been such good news to us. In fact, according to an older survey anyway, some 85% of Christians almost have come to follow Christ through the voice of a loved one. This is the ordinary way. This is the way. And many of us have had a loving father, mother, friend, or spouse who's told us about Jesus and even pleaded with us to know the Lord. And those voices should be hard to dismiss especially when we have seen that truth at work in their lives. Of course, we certainly aren't the people that we want to be or that we will be one day, but it is undeniable that Christ has made a profound impact in our lives. And some of us, more recently than others, have been utterly changed, root and branch. So we can talk about reason, point one, and that certainly has an important place. But even more than that, we can talk about reality. Reality, that is the reality of Christ manifest in human life. And God has chosen to reveal his truth to the world through flesh and blood in a way that is undeniable and beautiful. And not just in mere theories, but in flesh and blood, and supremely in Jesus himself. Now, insofar as you and I have remaining sin in our hearts and lives, that ought to be at least revealing itself more and more in humility and grace. Insofar as we are following Jesus well, it ought to be revealing itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So this is perhaps a message today to somebody who might think, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And I always say, not full yet, room for one more, right? But it's easy to see where we fall short, I admit. I admit, although you don't realize just how little God had to work with when he called us, right? Okay, so we, but we are not what we once were. That also must be made manifest. And that's what the church is. The place where we are on that journey together, however haltingly, how, how, however, however imperfectly, we are, have heard that voice, and we are on that journey together. He has begun the work, and he will complete it. And perhaps, perhaps you've heard that before, and you need to open your ear again to the voice of a loved one, perhaps one that's brought you here today. Well, this is our second point, that there was the voice of a loved one calling out on that day. Pilate heard a third voice that day, the voice of conscience, the voice of conscience. Now, it's very clear that Pilate was anything but a man of tender conscience from, from history. Um, and yet, uh, after he spoke to Jesus, it's clear what he regarded him as an innocent man. I find no fault in him. Again, he repeats it in verse 6. You take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. And he says it then a third time. And then he just tr he tries to find some way to let him go. Because even brutal men sometimes have a conscience awakened in them. You can't kill that off entirely. And this passage reveals something of his struggle. He, he was trying to do something that he knew was right. 
But it was to his, to his shock, he found eventually that he could not do it. Well, first he delayed, and they needed to talk to Jesus again. And then he, he tried this way and that way to get out of the dilemma and try to save face. Eventually, he found no way to avoid it. He had to make the choice, he said. He felt that he could do. He, could, he had to make this choice. He could either do what he knew he ought to do, or he could crucify the Lord. That voice of conscience still speaks. Perhaps you're, perhaps you're trying to put off a decision about Jesus, too. Um, you know, reason has had its voice. Your loved ones have had their voice. They're pushing you one way. Your own conscience telling you you should listen. But, uh, well, maybe later you say. I remember thinking so clearly that very thing. I, I remember very clearly thinking, maybe later. You probably don't know anything about that. Maybe that's just my hard heart. But I did learn something through that experience, though, which lasted for months. That the more that you ignore the voice of conscience, the more the voice of conscience tends to go away. The Bible calls that searing your conscience or hardening your heart. And the Bible gives us several illustrations of the fact that God strives and strives until he eventually gives them over and says, have it your way. Warning people that there are times when God gives people over to the godlessness they want, who then receive a greater judgment. Do not keep ignoring the voice of conscience. God has given it to you for a reason. Well, there was one more voice that Pilate heard that day, compelling him to do what is right, it was not just the voice of reason and the voice of a loved one and the voice of conscience within. He heard the voice of Jesus himself. He heard Jesus say things like, verse 37, You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here is the great voice, the great compelling voice that has been the true issue all the way through the Gospel of John to this point. That some have heard his voice, truly heard it, and have rejoiced to find that this is none other than the Son of God. Meanwhile, others who heard it only opposed him, and more and more. This strange reaction to Jesus where people just could not be neutral regarding him. He, like, the, like a cow catcher on the front of the train, right? He was throwing people off to one side or the other as he, as he made his way through this book. As we read in chapter 10, for instance, some people say, look, he has a demon. He's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. And can a demon open the eyes of a man born blind? You cannot dismiss the real Jesus so easily, in other words. Still today, that voice of Jesus is heard. 
it's being heard now. And I know what's happening as I speak it. It will harden some and soften others. But people will not leave this place unchanged. You will not leave here the same. The voice of Jesus is still heard. Some today say that Jesus has nothing to tell us. Jesus has nothing to say to the world. Others say, oh no, this is nothing less than the light of the world come among us. The late uh, Yale historian Ken Scott Latourette put it this way beautifully, I think. In this world of Ben, with its aspirations and struggles, there appeared one born of woman. To most of his contemporaries, he seemed a failure. Yet no life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men. But from that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphal waging of man's long battle than any other known by the human race. Through it, millions have had progressive victory over their baser impulses. By it, millions have been sustained in the greatest tragedies of life that have come through radiant. Through it, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance. It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse known to man. It has emancipated millions from slavery and millions of others from thraldom to vice. It has been the most fruitful source of movements to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of justice and peace. Well, eloquent words. And perhaps you think, well, that's sure overstating the case. What about this? What about that? This is what I'm telling you, people. Christ is still dividing men today. Some people think he has a demon. Some people think it's the Son of God, the light of the world. Jesus still continues to speak. He still speaks to the world. But will they hear? The good shepherd says his sheep do hear his voice and they follow him. And from his voice, once they have heard it, they cannot turn aside. Perhaps Pilate heard just a little bit of that voice, which is why he grew anxious and asked him again, who are you and where do you come from? Here is the fourth and final voice that combined to persuade Pilate to make a right judgment about Jesus. Four voices. And why didn't those voices prevail? Oh, I'll only point it out briefly to you. It was the standard reasons, then as now. I'll mention a few quickly. Pilate was afraid to go against public opinion. The people wanted Christ crucified. They wanted to have Pilate release a criminal instead, and their voices prevailed. Like any good politician, Pilate knew which way the wind was blowing. And when it came right down to it, he blew with the wind. He followed the crowd. What about you? Are you so concerned about public opinion, what people are saying and thinking, that you would even reject Jesus to please a crowd? 
Pilate, of course, didn't want to miss out on life. I mean, if he didn't make the politically correct decision, his job was on the line, his income, well, everything else. Do you fear that owning Jesus might cost you? Because, of course, it will. Jesus says, though, that kingdom of heaven is like treasure that a man's found hidden in a field for joy. He sells all that he has to buy it. But nevertheless, Pilate didn't want to miss out on life, and there was a lot on the line. Pilate thought that he might be all right if he could either delay or avoid making a decision. So he told the Jews, hey, you judge him. Or then uh, he tried to get Herod involved to take responsibility. Uh, he tried this, he tried that. What about Barabbas? He even tried literally to wash his hands of the whole matter. And he found that he couldn't. And some people today hope that just by ignoring Jesus, that will be enough. That'll be the solution. But of course, the decision is now thrust upon you. No worrying about them. The decision is thrust upon you, and it's too late for you. Pilate asks the question elsewhere, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? He asks the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? You need to make this judgment. It's unavoidable. It's a question that everyone here must now face. Is he to be revered as the greatest of prophets, or is he the one of whom all the prophets testified? Is he to be admired as the best of men, or is he to be worshipped also as God? That's the dilemma. That's the choice. Pilate, um, Pilate says some nice things about him. I find no fault in him. Many people today will say the same. I don't, I don't have any problem with Jesus. I believe Jesus was a great man, a great teacher. And what they're doing, of course, is damning him with faint praise, as we say. Re rejecting the real Jesus, which should be the object of our adoration and love and worship. To make for themselves another Jesus, which is much tamer indeed. It would be better for people never to have heard of him than to condemn him with such kind words or damn him with faint praise. So take a lesson from Pilate. Pilate found out that no matter what you do, you can't avoid decision about Jesus. What will you do? Will you crucify him or crown him? Those are really the only two options available. You cannot wash your hands of Jesus Christ. Kind of a heavy sermon today, isn't it? Well, it's, it, is, it is the Lord's condemnation, right? It is serious things. But I would like to spend a few minutes thinking with you about this picture of God in the dock now, before we conclude. God in the dock. Do you know that really typically British expression? When you put, when you put somebody on trial in, in Britain, they're in the dock. They had this nice little place for the accused to sit called the dock. Picture God in the dock. What does it mean to sit in judgment on Jesus. Let's think about that for a few. I began the sermon by referring to that uh, famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards. And many people have speculated, why was that sermon so influential? Like, wh why did it strike a nerve? 
in the society of that day. It doesn't seem to resonate with modern people, but it sure did in that day. What was it? People have suggested this or that. I will tell you, I'm sure is at least part of the reason. The, uh, the Age of Reason, so-called, had washed up on American shores some years earlier. A, um, a, a secular and skeptical mindset had settled into Harvard already and was beginning at Yale. Uh, people were coming out with the new divinity. People were making arguments, new arguments against the Bible and the Trinity, which was already paving the way to deism in America. Jesus was being viewed as the best and wisest of moral men, but uh, certainly not as the judge of all the earth, which would lead to a Unitarian Universalism, still with us. God was in the dock. Jesus was being judged by men. You decide. You decide. In such a climate, Edward's sermon was like a bucket of cold water, like a wake-up call for that society. Look, God is not in your hands. You are in God's hands. Here you are sitting in judgment on and provoking to anger the only source of hope and mercy there is. The question is not, what are you going to do with Jesus? The only question that matters is, what is Jesus going to do with you on that great day? So you see the importance, the relevance of that sermon in the age of reason. It was a Copernican revolution in that age. You are not the center of the universe. It is not all up to you. You are certainly not in the position of ultimate judge. You are the accused. More recently, of course, C.S. Lewis has an essay about the main difficulties that he encountered when he was telling people about their faith in Christ. Somebody said, you know, you've made all these speeches and all these books and everything like that. What are the main troubles that you run into when you tell people to put their trust in Christ? Well, he wrote an essay, a brief essay, called God in the Dock, which became the title of a collection of essays, if you're looking for it, by the way. But Lewis says that the main difficulty that he finds in talking to modern people is that they are comfortable thinking that they're in the position of judge. And that God is the one who's in the dock. Just what the serpent had led man to believe, by the way, so many years ago. Right at the fall of man. Has, has God indeed said? Yeah, has God said? Well, you decide. From the beginning, evil has enticed man to sit in judgment upon God. So Lewis writes, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Man sees himself as quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, well, he's likely to listen to it. But the important thing is that man is on the judge's bench and God is in the dock. 
The whole book of Job is about this reversal of place. Is man truly in the place of sitting in judgment on God? Or is God, in fact, the righteous judge of man? Job 4.17, Shall mortal man be more just than God? And shall man be more pure than his maker? I think we need to hear Edward's wisdom again. On the surface, the Jewish leaders who we read last week sat in judgment on Jesus were far less cruel and more civilized than the guards who, as we're about to read, are going to make sport of beating up Jesus. It seems like the Jewish leaders are much more civilized. They went through the formality of a trial under the guise of justice, and they asked him questions about his claims, but we know they were not actually seeking the truth so that they can conform their lives to it. They were not inquiring about Jesus so that they might become his followers if so, if so led. Their minds were made up. They sought a way to get rid of Jesus, but they could not succeed. And this is the reality that should, should certainly hit the whole world perhaps needs to hit you today like a bucket of cold water, like a wake-up call from on high. Then as now, many people sit in judgment on Jesus. But very, very soon, Jesus will be sitting in judgment on us. And then what will the answer be? What will the answer be for you, sir? For you, ma'am? In conclusion, the mighty love of God, at last approaching its greatest work, is met by a tremendous outburst of sin. Sin of every kind, the very sins that made the cross necessary, that just as the love of God is displaying its most supreme magnificence and glory at that very moment, the sinfulness of man is supremely revealed in all of its ugliness and self-centeredness. Can you see it all brought together, this magnificent portrait of God's great salvation and the terrible reality of rebellious man that made that salvation necessary? Where are those disciples Jesus came to save? Well, they've all fled, denying him or abandoning him. Everything, though, is taking place in God's providence to underscore the fact that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And it is so important that we hear that voice declare him three times, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Because in my place condemned he stood. And those are the words that you and I will hear if we are found in Jesus on that day. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. He has come into the world to save sinners. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a, what a, what a, what a savior. The innocent suffering for the guilty. And here we see the guiltiness at its fever pitch, the world doing its worst, committing the most heinous of sins in condemning the Son of God to crucifixion. 
For we all, like sheep, has gone, gone astray, and everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We will not fully appreciate this trial if we don't see ourselves in this rebellious crowd. Because it is for our sins that he has come. What accusation do you bring against this man? I've told you before about the American students who visited the Louvre in Paris. The Louvre is the finest art museum in the world, where you can go and see the Venus de Milo and the Mona Lisa and innumerable priceless works of art. Well, some students went there to visit and they weren't the best behaved. They spent their time going from room to room and making fun of the various pieces of art, criticizing them until one of the museum curators came up to them and stepped over to them quietly and said, in this musée, it is not the art that is judged. Get it? Everything here is a masterpiece. And if you don't like the Venus de Milo, rest assured, that says much more about you than it says about the Venus de Milo. So it is today when people think that they are judging Christ and that they are mocking Christ. Even in doing so, it is not Christ that is judged. It is them. Christ has been set before them, and that is the revelation of their hearts. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. With Christ set before them, their hearts are revealed. What about you? Are you on the side of truth? Have you given Jesus a fair hearing? I am a king, he says. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, having read of the greatest sins in the history of the world, of rebellious men conspiring together to put the Son of God to a most ignoble death, it is with great joy and praise that we acknowledge together that it has found us out as well in our darkness and sin and laid hold of us and reached all the way down to the very depths of death itself, that we might be freed from such sin and evil, giving us life and new life, lifting us up into your arms in his ascension. All of us confess, gracious Father, that we have in so many ways joined our voices with the crowd and called upon him to die. We have been rebels and we confess still that nature in so many ways, though in, uh, in, in mortal pains, nevertheless still expressing itself, a dying nature. And the one that now lives and reigns in us cries out to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, 
be glory, majesty, power, and dominion. We are so thankful for such a Savior, one who has made a total victory over all that stood against us. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, for taking away the sin of the world. Worthy are you of praise and adoration and worship. We rest in you today, and we await your word. Lead on, O King Eternal. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.